Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Psych Hero Podcast. I'm your podcaster, Jacinta of Sentinel Artworks. I'm a licensed professional counselor who practices art therapy in Denver, Colorado. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Sentinel Artworks, which Psych Hero is published underneath. You can find free episodes of Psych Hero on iTunes and SoundCloud. 2019 was the first season of Psych Hero, and now we're going into our second in the year 2020. This podcast is dedicated to providing information on how to incorporate superhero psychology and pop culture psychology into mental health and therapeutic practices. There are also some episodes that are just fun about superhero psychology, such as diagnosing episodes or how to do therapy with certain super characters. And so you can find those available for free on the web. Now, you'll also hear episodes from professionals who have come on to talk about how they've used pop culture psychology in their therapeutic practices, as well as people who want to share their own healing journeys through these episodes. And so I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Now let's put on our capes and those masks, whatever cosplay you see fit, and let's get started. Today's podcast is going to focus on Jungian psychology and superhero psychology. Today's podcast is called The Archetyped Superhero, and I have done a presentation on this at Naropa University very recently, so I hope you will all enjoy. Just a little bit about what Jungian psychology is and who Carl Jung is. So Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. He is known for analytical psychology, and he's very much a part of the transpersonal art therapy world as a result. He was an early supporter of Freud because he had a shared interest in the unconscious and dream work. However, he stepped away to pursue his own psychology and studies. Some of his work that you may have heard of does include personality types. So Carl Jung originally came up with personality types and Myers-Briggs later on added two more types to those personalities. So Carl Jung thought of the introvert-extrovert, intuition versus sensory, and the thinker versus feeler. But when Myers-Briggs came out, they added the judging versus perceiving. So for any of you that know your personality type, you'll hear letters like ENTJ, INTJ, and you can easily find out what your personality type is. The Myers-Briggs test is very widespread and easy to access on the internet. He is also a major player in the unconscious and masks, so you may have heard of the shadow. Everybody is pretty familiar and they think about the shadow as a Jekyll and Hyde sort of scenario where the shadow side represents evil. And while it can represent evil, Jung stated that the shadow side is also a part of the piece of us we reject, we suppress. We don't want to believe that that is part of us. So that is one of the things that we'll be talking about today. Some other aspects of his mask's work that you may have heard of is his public versus private mask, the persona, where he says that everybody wears a mask through their everyday life. They have a mask for work and then they have a different mask when they're home. So just a little bit there for you. In terms of his artwork, check out The Red Book if you're ever interested. He did a lot of his own artwork and diving into his own unconscious and deep psyche as part of his research. So his Red Book is pretty famous and not something that's easily purchased, but something that you can definitely take a look at or read more about. So the biggest thing that we're going to cover today in terms of Jung's work is his archetypal psychology and how that relates to superhero psychology or pop culture psychology. So let's segue right into that with a Jungian approach to comic book characters. Some of the learning objectives that I typically go through that you may have heard in other podcasts before or presentations before, is always starting with wanting to define what pop culture and superhero psychology is, 
Why should we even talk about super persons? And what are some of the identified archetypes in comic books, as well as Jungian psychology? And we'll talk about that as far as a superhero continuum goes. We'll define comic book archetypes. We'll talk about archetypal symbols and some of the superhero archetypes that we see, both in the collective and the individual as well as some supers and their shadows. So of course, it's really important for you to know the foundation. There are many sources that state pop culture was coined around the 19th century, and its definition had adapted to at least three iterations to get to the definition we have today. The reason for this change comes from the definition you see here, which is psychology today defines it as understanding ourselves through pop culture. The dictionary defines pop culture psychology as cultural activities or commercial products reflecting, suited to, or aimed at the tastes of the general masses of people. Pop culture, aka popular culture, refers to the traditions and material culture of a particular society as a whole. So as a result of this, the definition changes because pop culture is constantly evolving and occurs uniquely in place and time. In other words, it occurs in the present. So while I couldn't find any indication as to who coined pop culture psychology, there are major players contributing to the research we have today about superhero psychology, such as Robin S. Rosenberg and Travis Langley. There are numerous other works written or edited by Peter A. Coonan. Danny Fingeroff, Jennifer K. Stuller, and others. So now that we know what pop culture psychology is, what is superhero psychology? There's nothing written that gives it a definition. So if we think about it as a subset of pop culture psychology, it's a type of pop culture psychology that focuses on superheroes, superheroines, superpersons, and comic book fan bases. However, we do have a definition of superhero therapy that was coined by Dr. Janina Scarlett in 2014, who thought of superhero therapy as a new concept. The general idea of it is that you are psychoanalyzing or using superheroes in therapy in order to facilitate recovery. It calls for the integration of examples of heroes relevant to the client in therapy, and it can be easily incorporated into other therapy modalities, including evidence-based treatments, which is what we're doing today. We are going to tie it together with Jungian psychology. Now, although most of you are listeners and not participants in a presentation, I like to offer a brief exercise to my audience and just test your knowledge about superheroes. So normally, we will give a moment for people to take just two minutes and write down as many superheroes or comic book characters as they can. And then you want to go through and identify which super persons are not cisgender heterosexual white males. The purpose of this is just for people to understand which supers are at the forefront, which ones are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC Cinematic Universe, which ones are the most well-known, even if you're not an avid comic book reader. So it's important to know about what exists in the literature. It's important to know that there are many, many characters out there that are outside of that gender identity piece who are not cisgender heterosexual white males but they were also written by white people and could potentially be stereotyped. However, this does give us some ground to start with. So for this presentation or this podcast, there is going to be a focus on more popularized supers to help build us connections for those of you who are interested in this work. But there can be discovery made on vital characters that you would like to see. I do have a compilated list of these characters, and it is not over. There are so many characters out there that do not fit within the stereotypical ideas that we definitely have. So due to the importance of stories, more and more are recognizing the need to have diverse representation. The importance in these tales is to have it relatable and represented accurately. So as we jump into super persons and archetypes, let's remind ourselves of the types of archetypes in the comic book world in relation to Carl Jung's work. Now, why even start with superpersons to begin with? Why do we even have this interest? There are many articles that were written that talk about why we should look at supers and how we connect to them. 
Archetypes were initially discussed after reviewing patterns and themes in mythology. So if you think about it, today's world embodies a pop culture lens, and comic books have become a part of that new mythology, often encapsulating pieces of history. May not be an accurate representation of history, but history nonetheless. For example, when Captain America was shot walking out of the White House in the comic book world, we saw that as a response to 9-11 happening because people thought it was the end of America. So we do get that kind of mythology as part of it. And so Travis Langley in 2018, he said that stories are powerful communication tools. They can bypass existing biases and expectations to get people to look at real human issues with a fresh perspective. And we learn much truth from fiction. Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski also stated that stories help us all make sense of the world around us, which can help us make sense of our own lives. Therapeutic fan fiction invites clients and therapists to take back their joy and infuse it into their healing process. Therapeutic fan fiction helps you use the tools of your personal beloved fandoms to rewrite your own story, cast your own self-help magic spells, and change your life. Those are just a few of the authors that are out there that have said why stories are important to us. Storytelling is a creative component of human nature that is provided to instill moral codes and help individuals develop a moral identity. In comic books, we are constantly witnessing the moral struggles in the decision-making process with superheroes. As a result, it is important to see the archetypes superheroes represent and the messages they send. If you're interested, I created a podcast last September of 2019 with my friend Jerry and we talked about Captain America and morals and how we see moral development through his comic books. So that definitely touches a huge piece of how stories influence our own morality. Some of the definitions of heroism come from the Wonder Woman psychology that was written by Wesselman, Lobato, and Jordan. And they said definitions of heroism commonly involve abiding by a culturally valued moral code, enforcing justice, and protecting people altruistically. They also said an individual's moral beliefs influence how they define and evaluate their self-concepts. So what is the importance of this? Does anybody have an idea? Because I think this is really important for people to talk about. So Wesselman, Lobato, and Jordan said individuals strive for consistency across the various aspects of their self-concept. But as they negotiate the complexities of daily life, conflicts inevitably emerge. This is often a pattern that surfaces when we see comic book characters struggling with their quote human and quote superperson identities. In other words, the ideas of achieving the archetype of wholeness, the self is central element to comic books and Jungian psychology. So let's look at the identified archetypes in relation to the self. Carl Jung and Carol S. Pearson are two people who created a list of archetypes that we have, and heroic archetypes stem from these. So Carl Jung had the artist, the caregiver, the everyman, the explorer, the hero, the innocent, the jester, the lover, the magician, the outlaw, the ruler, and the sage. In relation to that, Carol S. Pearson created some that are more well-known, and there's a lot of common ones in between, but there are just a couple major factors that are different. So she has the caregiver, the creator, the destroyer, the fool, the innocent, the lover, the magician, the orphan, the ruler, the sage, the seeker, and the warrior. And what is this list about? What are these archetypes and why do we have so many? Why do we have ones that are the same and why do we have ones that are different? Well, to put it plainly, an archetype is an original pattern, okay? It's an inherited unconscious idea, pattern, or image universally present in individuals, which means Carl Jung stated that there is a collective unconscious. So across all cultures, people have similar ideas about specific patterns or images. 
So he identified the 12 that I had mentioned, and those are the 12 that he thought were the most apparent archetypes that everybody had similar ideas about. So the only ones that really changed was Carol decided to get rid of the artist. She did not have the everyman. She turned the hero into the warrior, and she also didn't have the outlaw. She had the destroyer instead. But the rest were the same. The fool and the jester are the same. They're just given different words. Archetypes of the collective unconscious provided the basic themes of human life on which each individual worked out his or her own variations. So this is what Anthony Stevens says in the Handbook of Jungian Psychology. He basically states that while we all have the same collective ideas, we do add our own individual variations to them because archetypes are identical psychic structures common to all, and but they have influence on human thought and behavior. They are patterns of extinctual behavior housed within the collective unconscious, which is a deeper fundamental realm. These psychic structures that are shared by all influence the way that we view the world. It's one of the theories that state how we have similar stories and characters across cultures. While comic books have a few of their own, many still stem from Jung's originally identified archetypes. So some of the ones that have been identified in comic book world consist of the anti-hero, the classic hero, the epic hero, the everyman hero, just a hero, sidekicks, sympathetic villains, superpersons, tragic heroes, vigilantes, and villains. Those are some of the comic book archetypes that are very well known in the world. So let's try and put those superhero comic book archetypes on a continuum. If we imagine that evil is on one side, which could be the shadow, potentially from Young, and on the other side we have the quote, good the personas. Along that continuum, we definitely have villains on the far side of the continuum, on the evil shadow side, with anti-heroes coming up along those lines. Then we have vigilantes. We have sidekicks that are definitely in the middle of the continuum because of their development as characters. They haven't quite fit into an archetypal form yet. Then we have heroes and heroines, and then we have super persons all the way on the other end with the good persona. Now the everyman, the classic, the tragic, the epic heroes, those are kind of all mixed in in between on this character type continuum. So it may be hard for you all to imagine, just know that the villains are on the evil side, super persons are on the good side, like they're the most idyllic extremes on either side of the continuum. Everything else is kind of in the middle. So when you're defining comic book archetypes, there aren't a lot of definitions that are really all-encompassing of what we look for. However, we do have a few. So the hero defines the genre by Coogan. He defined superhero as a heroic character with the universal, selfless, pro-social mis mission who possesses superpowers, extraordinary abilities, advanced technology, or highly developed physical and or mental skill. Hero and heroines taken from What is a Superhero by Rosenberg and Coogan, as well as the dictionary, they defined him as a gifted individual or legendary figure who repeatedly puts his or her own life at great risk for the greater good of others. This is a figure known for courageous acts or nobility of character. And then we have sidekick, which is just taken from the dictionary. It says it's a character who spends a significant amount of time as a junior partner to a mentor figure and is expected to one day pick up the mantle. So this is why they're pretty much right in the middle of the superhero continuum. So some examples of superheroes are obviously uh, like Superman, uh, the heroines, uh, Misty Knight, sidekicks, the Teen Titans. We have quite a few that you can find and name for yourself. However, those are just a couple examples in case you need that visual representation. Now we're moving on to vigilante and anti-heroes and villain definitions. 
So if you've heard past podcasts or come to presentations, I believe that there is a difference between vigilantes and antiheroes and their archetypal structures and what their foundations are. So I attempted to find definitions for all of these. So vigilante, this is something taken from the dictionary. It hasn't really been defined in any of the psychology articles that I have read. However, we do get a pretty good idea. So they said, A vigilante is a self-appointed doer of justice who enforces the law and takes the act of punishment into their own hands without legal authority. They work outside the law to stop crimes, catch and punish criminals. Vigilantes tend to not have superpowers and often have noble intentions. Now, how is that different from an antihero? Well, the antihero definition was taken from the antiheroism in the continuum of good and evil by Spivy and Knowlton. And they said it's a person who does bad things for the right reasons. It's not always motivated by noble principles and is frequently in a position of choosing among several evils. They are also known as a flawed hero because they will break hero code if the situation arises. So basically, antiheroes are also more selfish, and oftentimes they get paid for their, quote, good deeds. So I think the selfishness aspect of them is one of the core differences between antiheroes and vigilantes. Vigilantes are somewhat called by something in society that they want to correct, and antiheroes are not. They're very selfishly driven. Okay, so villains. Villains definition was taken from superheroes need superior villains by Carpenter. And he says, irresponsible characters who exercise their abilities and powers without restraint or concern for collateral damage. Villains challenge superheroes by externalizing their internal struggle. So we're already hearing pieces of that aspect of the shadow for villains. So some examples that we've identified for each of these definitions. So vigilante, Batman, an anti-hero, Rorschach, um, a villain, Apocalypse from the X-Men universe. There are quite a few to name and we can talk more about this if people are interested. So let's get into symbolic messages of super person archetypes and the meaning of the symbol. Symbols are extremely important in the archetypal psychology realm. Jung believed that people often received images and symbols and messages from archetypes in their dreams. He believed that archetypes cannot be directly observed, therefore the existence of archetypes is revealed by the symbolic imagery produced. So patterns of archetypes and their symbols derive from themes of mythology, and in this case, comic books. Symbols point to the existence of patterns of the unconscious or unknown material. So when you're having your dreams, certain symbols, imageries, any weird messages you're getting, Jung said that that would be from your archetypes. Edward Edinger defined a symbol, and he said it's a sign as a token of meaning that stands for a known entity. So in other words, comic book characters are walking symbolic archetypes ones that have been externalized to be observed. So we could take a moment to test this. How many superheroes do you know by their symbol alone? We don't need to see their face. We don't need to see their costume, but their symbols. Symbols are so powerful and identified that they become trademarked. Batman has one of the most common symbols that's on every merchandise you can possibly imagine. Captain America's shield, the X-Men X, Superman's S for symbol of hope, as well as Supergirl's. They're pretty much the same. They're just a little different in the coloring. Batwoman with the red bat. And every bat is defined differently or designed differently for each of the members of the bat family. Robin is also another identified one with the black oval and the yellow R. So there's quite a few symbols that are well known. The Flash, Aquaman, Green Lantern, those are all super well known. Black Widow, Deadpool. We're starting to get more and more people that are identifying characters by their symbols. And their symbols are supposed to stand for something, right? We already said Superman's symbol is supposed to mean hope. Batman's symbol is like a rising 
of his trauma. He wanted it to be a symbol of overcoming fear. Captain America, his shield representing the protection it's supposed to bring, defending America. There's a lot of symbols that we can gather, so see which ones that you kind of know from your own experience. These symbols have to formulate, however. So we typically see the archetypes of superheroes coming together throughout their origin story, or otherwise known as the hero's journey, which is a term posed by Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Through the journey, there are goals to achieve, fears to overcome, and ways to respond to a problem, which Carol S. Pearson highlights for each archetype. And through this hero's journey, we see a development. We see things having to go through. We have to see the power that symbol becomes. We have to see the choice that each character makes. Are they going to be a superhero? Are they going to have post-conventional morality, which is the highest form of morality? Or are they going to be more of an anti-hero that is going to play by their own roles? That's going to be a huge part in their development that we see in comic books and why that's important. So then we understand what their symbols are meant to be and what they're meant to stand for. It becomes a part of their own defining choice and their own representation of how they want to identify, how they want to be seen, what do they want to stand for. And this is how it is for each archetype, even in your dreams. And this is where the individual aspects come, is not everybody's going to have the same symbol given to them from their archetypes, and people aren't going to be receiving the same message. So that's where the individual component comes from. So you may be dreaming about white doves, and maybe for some people, that's the lover archetype speaking to them. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Maybe that's the magician speaking to them. It's going to mean different things for everybody, but know that the symbols are there for a reason. Now, Carol S. Pearson defined each of the archetypes she named and what their goals, fears, how they face a problem, what their response to a task is, and what their gifts are. And maybe by learning some of this, we can understand how super persons tend to have a mixture of a foundation for all these archetypes. So she says the innocent archetype's goal is to remain in safety and the fear's abandonment. She says if you're coming across a dragon or a problem in the hero's journey, the innocent tends to deny it or seek rescue. The response to a task is discernment and fidelity, while the gift virtue is trust and optimism. The orphan's goal is to regain safety and the fear is exploitation. When faced against a dragon or a problem, the orphan is victimized by it. The response to the task is to process and feel pain fully, while the gift in virtue is interdependence and realism. Now the warrior, the warrior's goal is to win. The fear is weakness. When confronted with a problem or a dragon, it wants to slay it or confront it. The response to a task is to fight only for what really matters. And the gift of virtue is courage and discipline. The caregiver's goal is to help others. The fear is selfishness. The dragon or the problem is to take care of it. The response to a task is to give without maiming the self or others. The gift in virtue is compassion and generosity. The seeker, the seeker's goal is to search for a better life. The fear is conformity. When faced with a problem or a dragon, it wants to flee from it. The response is to be true to deeper self. And the gift and the virtue is autonomy and ambition. The lover's goal is bliss. The fear is loss of love. When confronted with a dragon or a problem, it's going to love it. The response to a task is to follow your bliss. The gift of virtue is passion and commitment. The next six, the destroyer. The destroyer's goal is metamorphosis. The fear is annihilation. The dragon or the problem is to allow the dragon to deal with the problem. The response to the task is to let go, and the gift or virtue is humility. The creator's goal is identity. The fear is authenticity. When faced with the dragon or a problem, it's to claim it as part of the self. The response to a task is self-creation and self-acceptance. The gift or virtue is 
individuality and vocation. The ruler's goal is order. The fear is chaos. The dragon or the problem is to find its constructive uses. The response to a task is to take full responsibility for your life. And the gift or virtue is responsibility and control. The magician's goal is transformation. The fear is evil sorcery. When faced with a dragon or a problem, they want to transform it. The response to a task is to align the self with cosmos. And the gift or virtue is personal power. Now the sage, the sage's goal is truth. Fear is deception. The dragon or a problem is to transcend it. Response to a task is to attain enlightenment. And the gift or virtue is wisdom and non-attachment. So this brings us to the last one that Carol S. Pearson mentioned. So she said the fool's goal is enjoyment. The fear is non-aliveness. The dragon or the problem is to play tricks on it. The response to a task is the trust in the process. And the gift of virtue is joy and freedom. So if you want to learn more about those, you can read Carol S. Pearson's book called Awakening the Heroes Within. It's quite fascinating and gives you more in-depth readings about the journeys for each of these archetypes. Now, how does this relate to superheroes or comic book characters? So we have to remember that Jung stated that although the shadow is not always negative, all triggers are shadows. As we see superpersons struggle with morality, we're often reminded of their humanity. Supers often have internal dilemmas and struggle with their identities. They take on false personas, and they tap into certain archetypes if they need a disguise. So the fact that they have internal conflicts is a reminder of their dark side and their humanness. And without that, archetypes swallow the person whole. Jung stated that at the core of it, a pure archetype is an evil entity, which is where we have our villains. So let's wrap that all in a bow. In the Handbook of Jungian Psychology, The Shadow, written by Anne Casement, she says, there has to be a dark side in order for a person to become whole. And by becoming conscious of that, they remember they are human like everyone else. So again, those archetypes and their patterns sound very familiar. Comic book characters have aspects of different pieces of those archetypes, although we do see some that are much more apparent in others. So for example, the innocent we might see that one become a huge part in Shazam's character. We know the orphan is a big one in a lot of superhero novels. Superman, Batman, The Flash, Daredevil, The Hulk, Spider-Man, Aquagirl, Robin. Even a lot of Disney characters are orphans. So we do see the orphan playing out quite a bit. If you want to look at the magician, we have Scarlet Witch and Doctor Strange, Doctor Fate, and Zatanna as examples. We do have a lot of others that are encompassed with each of them, but we have to remember that they all don't have the same one. So Scarlet Witch does have a strong foundation with the magician. However, she's not just the magician. We see some of the, the creator in her. We see some of the destroyer in her as well. And those are also major pieces that keep her from being a full-blown villain. Back to Anne Casement, she said, When a shadow is activated, usually through projection, it is charged with affect and takes on an autonomous life of its own beyond the ego's control. Many aspects of the personal shadow may be traced back to the relationship to the parent or parental surrogates and siblings. So this is why Jung felt that all triggers are shadows. So think about it. The shadows are meant to represent aspects of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge. We may suppress them. We may have used certain aspects of those selves up a lot in the past and now we don't want to anymore. For example, we see that a lot with the caregiver archetype where the caregiver gets so overrun into an unhealthy version where people are being people pleasers, they're becoming self-martyrs, right? So maybe they were tired of doing that, so they decided to cast that aside. Even that could potentially be their shadow. So it's something that we don't like, something we repress, something we don't want for ourselves anymore, something we don't want to acknowledge. And so when we see that in other people, this may be when we get angry, irritated, shut down, 
any of the above. It's the same with personality structures. If you're complete opposite sides of the spectrum, so an ESFP and an INTJ, you're probably going to have a hard time getting along. And this is not true for everybody, but it's very possible. And that's why they're saying that triggers are shadows. Whenever we feel that, there's definitely a shadow aspect there. So let's look at an example, and we're going to look at the most popular example of this. So Batman. A lot of people, even in everyday life, talk about Batman and the Joker being sh the shadow of Batman. So the Joker is 100% the trickster, the jester, the full archetype, right? And it's he is that 100%, and that is why he's evil. He's not really any other archetypes at that point. But we don't have just villains being Batman's shadow. We now have Batwoman. Batwoman is definitely a shadow aspect to Batman because she thinks very differently than him. She makes decisions differently than him. She does things very different from him that are against his own moral code that he has struggles with. He doesn't know how to work with her. He gets very angry about the decisions that she makes because they're against his own moral code and what he believes in. So she's also an aspect of the shadow for him that's not a villain. Now some of the other archetypes that we see with Batman is Batman definitely has the orphan, as we stated before, and he has aspects of the warrior archetype. When he's Bruce Wayne, he puts on a false sense of the lover archetype by being a playboy. And the reason why I say false is because when we fall into a stereotypical form of the archetype, it's not really genuine aspect of the self. Now, there are times when we just happen to meet a stereotype, and that is very genuine, but we know for him, being a playboy is not very genuine. It's a mask he uses to protect himself. So in a way, that's a false sense of the lover, but we do see the lover archetype coming back up. With Robin, Robin is definitely the innocent and the orphan. And depending on which of the Robins that you discover, you'll find that all the Robins have different aspects of other archetypes as well. Like Jason Todd, the destroyer and the creator aspects of him, where he was literally dead and came back to life and he retransformed and had a whole new identity and sense of self. Those are aspects of not only his journey, but those are aspects of his archetypes that he has for himself. Now, we don't have time to touch over all of the aspects of each of these archetypes. However, there are very, very important descriptions in Carol S. Pearson's novel about these archetypes and why I think that they apply to these supers. So, for example, we'll talk a little bit about the orphan and the warrior as two of their archetypes. So the warrior, we already talked about what the goal of fear response is, but there's also other aspects. So the addiction of a warrior is the achievement success. The addictive quality is stoicism. And actually the warrior really pairs with the hero archetype that Jungian originally had. So the warrior is really about setting boundaries and the warrior has to be coupled with the ruler to help the ruler not become a dictator. And so the warrior has a high level of commitment to integrity. Warriors live by and when necessary fight for their own principles or values even when doing so is economically or socially costly. So we see this very apparent in Batman with very strong, sometimes even rigid boundaries for himself. The shadow side of the warrior is somebody who is ruthless, unprincipled, obsessed, and needs to win. They use a power for conquest and they view all differences as a threat. So the warrior uses their skills for personal gain without thought of morality, ethics, or good of the whole group. So that would be the shadow or the villain aspect of a warrior. And you can find more information about what the warrior does. A big part of him is about claiming power in the world, establishing place in the world, and making the world a better place. And we definitely see that with 
with Batman and his relationship with Gotham. Okay, so the orphan, the orphan is one that a lot of people want to reject, but it's actually very important that we all need as well. So the orphan's addiction is powerlessness, worrying, the addictive quality is cynicism. So when we think of the orphans, the orphans experience a fall and they see it as a fall and it's demonstrating the essential truth that we're all on our own. So the call in the journey of an orphan is abandonment, betrayal, and self-betrayal, disillusionment, discrimination, victimization. The shadow side of the orphan is cynicism, callousness, masochism, or sadism, using the victim role to manipulate the environment. And the orphan archetype is, in each of us, is activated by all the experiences in which the child in us feels abandoned, betrayed, victimized, neglected, or disillusioned. They're activated by painful experiences, especially childhood ones. And so we see this very much in a lot of the supers when they lose their parents. It's often very traumatic. They feel victimized. They feel abandoned or disillusioned. And it really impacts their development as super persons. So obviously in Batman, in every single origin story, movie, comic book that we see, they're always talking about when his parents were murdered in an alleyway. This is a huge part of his archetypal structure between the warrior and the orphan. Since we have time, let's go over a couple of these before we get into collective unconscious archetypal examples. So thinking of the destroyer, much like the orphan, the destroyer is another one that a lot of people want to stay away from and they typically don't like. However, there's a lot of positive aspects to it as well. And so the destroyer, the addictive quality is self-destructiveness. The addiction is suicide or self-destructive habits. Um, the shadow side is that self-destructiveness um, and includes self-destructive behaviors like addictions, compulsions, or activities that undermine intimacy, courage, success, or self-esteem. Obviously, it could go to even greater lengths if you are the villain with the destroyer. And there is, um, you know, emotional or physical abuse, murder, and rape. These all have destructive effects on them. But let's think about why we need the destroyer. Okay, so the call of the destroyer is the experience of pain, suffering, tragedy, and loss. And as the destroyer moves through their journey to become healthy aspects of the self, by the time they get to their ultimate level, the destroyer has the ability to choose to let go of anything that no longer supports values, life, and growth, or that of others. So letting go is a very important aspect to the destroyer. Whatever we deny in our conscious minds will possess us, as Carol S. Pearson says, for the destroyer. They are central to metamorphosis. If the destroyer had only this role, it would seem fairly benign and we could relax into the basic benefits of the universe. But the destroyer often strikes in ways that seem simply irrational and meaningless. However, metamorphosis is needed in our life. The initiation of experience may be precipitated by a sense of powerlessness. The discovery that everything you have counted on, worked toward, or tried to build in life has come to nothing. It can be an encounter with injustice. You have been good, disciplined, hardworking, loving, and in return you get kicked to the teeth. This is Carol S. Pearson's feeling for the call of the destroyer. And this is what she says about it. However, the seeking is active and we have to feel like we choose it. Sooner or later, the loss or fear or pain turns out to be an initiation of a new journey for us. And those are one of the reasons why the destroyer is a transformer. The destroyer makes us humble. And it also tries to avoid being destructive to ourselves if it's very healthy. The archetype helps us clean out our closets, so to speak, in the emotional realm. So this is one of the ways that the destroyer is pretty important in dealing with pain. The next one is the fool. So everybody knows the shadow side of the fool as the glutton, the sloth, or leecher. Uh, they're a person that's wholly defined by lusts and urges of the body without any sense of dignity or self-control. So the addiction is excitement. Um, 
Specifically, she also stated that cocaine and alcohol are the addictions of the fool. The addictive quality is inebriation. So the call is a boredom, a desire to have more enjoyment in life. The shadow is a self-indulgence and irresponsibility. However, the positive aspects of the fool is that life is experienced fully in the moment. It's celebrated for its own sake and lived for in the moment, one day at a time. It's the aspect of the inner child that knows how to play. Carol S. Pearson said it's to be sensual and in the body. It's at the root of our basic sense of vitality and aliveness, which expresses itself as a primitive, childlike, spontaneous, playful energy. The fool emerges in our lives at moments that seem most painful, and they can make decisions, whether choosing friends, work, lovers' beliefs, or spiritual practices, almost exclusively based on the pleasure principle. So that's one of the reasons why we can't be the fool 100%. Remember, 100% is evil in terms of Jung's ideas about archetypes. We do see aspects of the fool in a lot of comic book characters that have a lot of humor to them, a lot of playfulness to them. So there are certain characteristics of that in there. You know, we have Shazam, which I mentioned was innocent, but he's also got the fool. The Joker is 100% fool. And we also have the fool coming up in a lot of witty characters or goofy characters as well. Sometimes even the Flash or Kid Flash has some aspects of the fool. Now the lover, the lover's addiction is relationships and sex. The addictive quality is intimacy problems. The shadow side is jealousy, envy, obsessive fixation on a love, object or relationship, sexual addiction, Don Juanism, promiscuity, an obsession with sex or pornography, or conversely, puritanism. So in traditional mythology, you'll see the lover as sirens or seducers using love for conquest types of ideas. And there are also aspects that are healthy with the lover, just like all archetypes so far. The lover can have self-acceptance, connects with personal, the transpersonal as well. And without love, the soul does not engage itself with life. Carol said that love is the spiritual food of the soul, and it's the soul that gives birth to our ego. So without love, the ego container eventually begins to dry up and crumble. Love comes as passion, forgiveness, and grace. It always calls us to make a commitment and have faith in that decision. It's about joy and pleasure, and it's also about birthing. So we can use it to transform ourselves to a degree by means like forgiving ourselves. There are a lot of characters in the comic book world that have lovers as a foundation, maybe not even in the traditional sense, like Han Solo in Star Wars, Harley Quinn in the DC universe. Conversely, Rogue and Gambit have an interesting dynamic with the lover archetype as well. So those are some of the examples for the lover that you might see. And of course, there's many others. Catwoman, that's not the only archetype that these people are, but the, you do see aspects of the lover archetype within them. All right, so giving you some ideas about the ruler. So the ruler's addiction is control and codependence. The addictive quality is high control needs. The shadow side is the ogre tyrant, insisting on his or her own way and banishing creative elements of the kingdom or the mind to gain control at any price. They're controlling rigid, tyrannical, and manipulative behaviors. So that's the shadow side of them. However, again, let's look at what their call is, what their healthy side is. So the call to the journey for the ruler is a lack of resources, harmony, support, or order in your life. So by the time you use it in a healthy way and you feel more whole with the ruler, you get to fully utilize resources, internal as well as external resources. The ruler creates a peaceful and harmonious kingdom by becoming peaceful and harmonious on the inside. So when the ruler is active in our lives, Carol says that we're integrated, whole, and ready to take responsibility for our lives. We don't shy away from recognizing that our world is mirroring us, and we can see ourselves by looking around. It's an archetype about claiming our own power for good and for ill. 
So we do see the shadow side of the ruler in quite a few villains, like Ronan, the Apocalypse, who is often just using people for their own gains, even harming others if they don't do their bidding. So we do see those quite a bit as aspects of them, power-hungry people. Okay, so then we have the magician. So the magician's addiction is power, hallucinogenic drugs, marijuana, addictive qualities, dishonesty. So the shadow side is an evil sorcerer, and they engage in evil sorcery any time that we belittle ourselves or belittle another. So this is often a result of diminished self-esteem. The magician is important in wanting to use knowledge about everything being connected to everything else, developing a mastery of the art of changing physical realities by first changing mental, emotional, and spiritual ones. The magician's journey tends to begin with some kind of wounding, and it's only through healing themselves that the magician learns to heal others. They learn to listen to their intuition, and they begin to act on their own sense of intuitive sense of rightness despite their awareness of what others might think. The power of the magician is to transform reality by changing the consciousness, as Carol S. Pearson states. Now I gave you some examples of superheroes earlier that fit that description. So we have Doctor Strange and Scarlet Witch as the examples I mentioned earlier. So the caregiver. Now the caregiver, we talked about the shadow side a little bit. The addiction is caretaking and codependence, and the addictive quality is rescuing. So the shadow side is that suffering martyr who controls others by making them feel guilty by saying, look, all I've sacrificed for you. It evidences itself in a manipulative or devouring behavior, and the individual uses that to control or smother others. So this is what we see for the shadow side. However, the initial call for the caregiver is the responsibility that require the care of others or recognitions of others' neediness or dependence or even your own, right? We can't pour tea from an empty teacup. It's really important to have a balance of the caregiver. You have to take care of yourself. Carol says that caregivers begin by taking total responsibility for a learning or healing situation. They create atmospheres and environments in which people feel safe and at home. The caregiver who already has a well-developed warrior can set reasonable limits and boundaries on behavior. So the boundaries create clean and reassuring edges of a container which collective and individual life grows. So we can actually see this with Black Panther's T'Challa. He's a ruler, but he uses his caregiver self to give himself that balance of creating a place where people feel safe and at home. So we see him having aspects of the ruler and the caregiver. So we only have a few more left to go. I hope you're hanging in there with me. I hope this is interesting for you. So we have the seeker. And the seeker's addiction is independence and perfection. The addictive quality is self-centeredness. The shadow side is the perfectionist, always striving to measure up to an impossible goal or find the right solution. We see this in people whose main life activity is self-improvement, and yet they never feel ready to commit to accomplish anything. So the ultimate achievement for a seeker is to have spiritual searching and transformation. So they respond to the call of the spirit. They want to ascend. They want to seek a better future or find a more perfect world. They begin by longing for a return to the time of innocence before the fall. And this urge motivates much of the seeking and striving in life. But whatever we obtain, it's not satisfied. So Carol says, all of those things about the seeker. And she also says that we must find that we seek inside ourselves or we will never find it beyond. So just like all the other archetypes so far, we're seeing that there's an importance to understand our own internal worlds, the worlds that are inside of us and how they're interacting with the world outside. And we see that battle constantly in the comic book world. Constantly, people are wanting to have a better world, and they are trying to navigate that outer world based on what they know about their internal world. So we kind of see the seeker for Iron Man, where he is just striving so hard for a better world, and he tends to have excessive 
ambition and perfectionism, pride. For a while, he did. We did see those commitment issues. Um, he's completely dissatisfied, feeling empty. Experimenting and studying was huge for him, and that's a big part of the seeker. So that is one of the basic characters that you'll find for the seeker's journey. Now we're getting into the next one of the innocent, which I mentioned a little bit earlier about some of the characters that fit with the innocent. But the addiction is consumerism, sugar, and cheerfulness. The addictive quality is denial. So if we want to talk about the shadow side of the innocent, the innocent is somebody who uses repression, blaming, conformity, irrational optimism, and risk-taking. So they don't let themselves know what is really going on. The innocent may be hurting themselves or others, but they're not acknowledging it. They may also be hurt, but they're repressing uh, that knowledge as well. So what others are saying, even when their perspectives directly counter your own inner knowing, they believe that. They believe that. So the innocent, as Carol states, is the part of us that trusts life, ourselves, and other people. It's the part of us that has faith and hope, even when on the surface things look impossible. It's the part of us that keeps the faith in whatever it is we are hoping for. It's also the part that allows us to trust others enough to learn from them. So it's essential to learn the basic skills of life and work. So that's Carol's description of the innocent. She says, when the innocents are afraid of others, they avoid facing the fear by blaming themselves. So we see this as also another trend in comic books. Sometimes in our sidekicks, those can come up as well, but they do come up in our heroes, especially newer heroes, newly born heroes. We see the innocent coming up. And lastly, we have the creator. So the creator's addiction is work and creativity. The addictive quality is obsessiveness. The shadow side is that they create so many possibilities in their mind, right? They're imagining these possibilities, but they're not acting on anything. So one variety of this is workaholism, in which we always think of just one more thing to do. So they create negative circumstances, limited opportunities, obsessive creation, workaholism. So when we discover or give birth to our true selves, the creator also comes into our lives. Carol says that when we become aware of our connection with the creative source of the universe, we also begin to become aware of our part in creation. So whatever spirituality, faith, religion that you feel encompasses this, that is for the individual. But she says the more in touch we are able to be with our souls, the more in touch we can be with this creative, transformative part of ourselves. So the creator ties a lot to creating a life that means to honor our experiences, honestly, without denial, but also give our lives a sense of being worthy and valuable. It has creativity, and creativity is the ground of a life. And Carol says it's a ground of any well-lived life. She says we all create our lives by the choices that are available to us about the ways we live them, no matter how circumscribed those choices might be. Some of these choices feel like they are freely chosen and within our control, and some feel like they have claimed us and their processes live and breathe in us. Nevertheless, we do create our lives by the ways that we live. So bringing this back to Doctor Strange, we do see aspects of the creator and the magician working with him. So hopefully this is helping create some of those connections in your brain about how we see these archetypes becoming foundational characters into building superheroes, whether it's supers, antiheroes, vigilantes, or any of those other archetypes that we've mentioned. Of course, there are some common archetypes that you see with certain comic book character archetypes. So, for instance, with the superhero, we tend to see more of the warrior, the caregiver, the explorers, magicians, sages, and orphans. But then when we're looking at sidekicks, we see a lot more of the innocent orphans and seekers. Sometimes we get the fool in there as well. With antiheroes, we definitely get a lot of the warrior, destroyer, lover, and fool scenarios 
where a lot of them have a weird sense of humor or they turn to this direction because they've tragically lost someone important in their lives. So those are some of the common archetypes you see with villains. We definitely see a lot of the trickster destroyer ruler archetypes, um, but there are others that we've spoken of earlier today. With vigilantes, we get a lot of the warrior, explorer, or creator. And remember, the explorer is also the seeker. Sorry to change those words up on you. And then the heroes, we see a lot of the creators and the seekers or the explorers. So we do get a lot of common ones. And you see that in a lot of their stereotypes and their characteristics as well for each of them. So we do see some of those commonalities. Now, as far as which one they fall versus you know, the classic hero, epic hero, or tragic hero, those pieces are going to come from their origin stories. And that's where we'll see a lot of their development is in their own hero's journey through their origin stories, which archetypes become most important. Now, the thing about archetypes is as you're going through your journey, there are archetypes that are going to be more important and prevalent at that point in time in the journey than others. This goes for people as well. There may be time that your caregiver self is really coming up much more strongly, hopefully alongside your warrior, right? Because the warrior will help you create boundaries with your caregiver. But there may come a time when you don't need to use it quite as much. Maybe the caregiver can take a break for a while and you end up wanting to do more of your own soul searching. So then the creator is going to be more important. In my work with clients, I see a lot of people who are working on their identity and rebuilding who they are have a lot of the creator destroyer archetypes in them. So it changes throughout the journey and throughout your life. So that's going to be true for our comic book heroes as well. Although Batman's foundation had started with the orphan and we do see that being significant in his life, it's not always prevalent. And so that's something to keep in mind with these characters as well. So when we're talking about how might we see a collective representation of an archetype, I think the easiest one to talk about is Captain America. Captain America was created out of an overall collective idea of the ideal representation of the United States. He symbolically represents the pride of the United States. He was a super soldier, he was a hero, and he was a warrior and a seeker and a caregiver, and fans were outraged when he was killed in the comics around 9-11 happened. And so he was very pivotal and strong and had a lot of collective ideas as far as what America wanted to represent. Now, he's done in a very idealistic collective idea way. And we did see that because as soon as Sam Wilson's Captain America came in replace of Steve Rogers, we had a lot of people being very upset uh, because the idea of a black man represented the United States was not something that people were being open to because it was changing that idealistic collective idea of what the United States is wanting to represent in Steve Rogers as Captain America. And that's all the more reason why it's important to change these and let them transform as pop culture is changing and depending on what the need is. There are many things that we need to have a new representation and change these collective ideas to transform into something new. So we do have a black man representing the United States as Sam Wilson becomes Captain America. And more recently, we got America Chavez, who's a queer Latin superhero, also using the symbols, colors, and representation of the United States. So that is just some examples of how we see a collective idea emerge and how it's changing as the years progress and times change. So that's all I have as far as combining Jungian psychology and superhero psychology together. There's a lot that can be dissected in this realm when we're looking at stories, specific heroes, and wanting to know what archetypes fit into these folds and not necessarily making them all 
fit into a nice, neat little category because we can't do that with archetypes. Jung said that we need all of the archetypes to function in our lives at some point or another in order to achieve wholeness, which is something that he said people strive for. He also said that we never reach wholeness, but that is one of the human foundations that we work towards. And I think that's also a fundamental realm that we see in the comic book world of these supers just wanting to figure out how to balance their lives so they can feel more whole not just sacrifice everything to constantly be a hero, but how do you be a superhero and still have a family, still have a job, still able to navigate the world as a human being or as a non-superhero being, right? And so that's why we have so much importance and value in this. And for those of you interested in art therapy, this is that simple plug-in that we can have to create that connection between art therapy and superhero psychology is this Jungian psychology lens. So if you are more interested in this, I do have another presentation that I performed for the Colorado Art Therapy Association about how to encompass pop culture psychology in art therapy. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so make sure that you are taking extra special care of your mental health during this time. Your mental health and mental well-being matters. Take care, stay safe, and this is your Psych Hero signing off.